what do you what all do you know about indian parliament what all the general things that you that you know about indian parliament come on guys this is a question that every indian should be knowing the answer to at least you should be able to tell three four things about our parliament at least we discussed a few things yesterday so you can take a cues from yesterday and then probably think about it tell me what all do you know about indian parliament parliament is composed of lok sabha rajya sabha and president all right excellent all right so yes uh, when we say the term parliament in indian uh, political language it, it it involves three parties mainly it involves the house of lok sabha it involves the house of rajya sabha as well as the uh, president right because any legislative process that happens in the parliament requires to be passed by these three uh, positions right it has to be passed by lok sabha it has to be passed by rajya sabha and it has to be passed by the president or rather it has to be signed on by the president for example it may be passed by lok sabha and rajya sabha but as long as president does not put his signature on the same then it does not become a law right it will stay on the same right so you might be thinking that uh, it's always said that in, in india president is more or less like a ceremonial post more or less like a rubber stamp where he does not have real power so now when i say unless and until he signs it it becomes uh, it does not become a law that you might be thinking isn't he actually powerful right so there is a small twist in this for example in case of a constitutional amendment bill yesterday we discussed about how the constitutional amendment process is being done right so when a constitutional amendment bill is being passed in both the houses and it goes to the president then the president has no option but he has to mandatorily sign it like he cannot say that i will not sign on it right so the president has to sign on the bill so that he has no choice so in there in that case he does not have particular particular uh, great powers over there uh, when a constitutional amendment bill especially because uh, the reason the logic behind it is a, it's a reason that both rajya sabha and lok sabha has passed it with a special majority right so the fact that it is passed with a special majority shows that it has come after intense deliberation so the president has no choice but to sign on the bill all right but there are some other type of bills like a normal bill not a normal resolution that comes in a, like let's say uh, any, any new law or uh, any new uh, what is a act is being passed for example let's say the ews reservation right or uh, no ews reservation was actually a constitutional amendment sorry uh let's say any other bill for example a new act was passed a new amendment was passed to the rti act there are right information act had an amendment in the recent past so that particular bill is a normal bill and that is introduced in the parliament it is passed by lok sabha it is passed by rajya sabha then it comes to president president has only two options president can either sign the bill all right and then it becomes a act all right or he cannot sign the bill in the sense like if he does not sign the bill that the bill just fails right then the bill has to be introduced in the lok sabha or rajya sabha again now third one is he can send back the bill he can send back the bill for reconsideration he can say that i won't sign it right now i want you guys to reconsider the bill again just discuss it again and then send it back to me in that case if the bill goes back to the rajya sabha or lok sabha wherever the house is and if it comes back to the president again for the second time then the president has to sign it the constitution only gives the power to the president to send back the bill only once right so if he, if he is not satisfied with the bill the president can only send back the bill for the first time and if it comes back to him the second time in with or without changes it is not necessary that just because he send it for reconsideration there needs to be some changes in that particular bill or uh, in that law right? for example if he sends it back and he says that these are the changes that i had in mind can you reconsider the bill uh, so the lok sabha or rajya sabha which wherever the bill was actually passed both the houses will pass it again with or without the changes they will send it back to the president and this second time the president has no choice but he has to sign the bill all right so in that way if you look 
president's powers are very restricted uh, it is true that indian president has a role of a ceremonial head we do not have uh, actual meaningful powers for a president though he has some situational powers uh, in certain situation he has some extra powers or discretionary powers to be very precise uh, can anyone tell me what are those situations where president has a uh, sort of discretionary powers can anyone tell even from their own uh, like general knowledge where they have read it somewhere i'm sure you wouldn't have learned about president's discretionary powers but generally just to logically think where do you think are the other areas where the president may have discretionary powers any particular states government get dissolved then the president's role will happen okay so the president's rule might happen yes uh, that is a power of the president to impose president's rule but there also uh, there is also another uh, twist to it uh, the president is not re- really free to do anything on his own he has to be advised by the cabinet which is headed by the prime minister so unless and until the the cabinet headed by the prime minister advises the president to impose president's rule in any state president on his own cannot impose uh, emergency sorry cannot impose any emergency or president's rule in any state so whatever president's rule that you might see in the newspapers in jammu and kashmir in the earlier instance that was in jammu and kashmir you had seen it in northeast india you had seen it in uh, maharashtra where the president's rule was just imposed after uh, there was a political instability in the state so wherever you see this president's rule though the name president's rule is there it is not actually president who decides on his own to impose a rule over there it is basically he is acting on the advice of the cabinet which is headed by the prime minister the cabinet committee or the not the cabinet committee the cabinet which is headed by the prime minister prime minister is head of the cabinet in india so they advise the president on the advo- on the receiving on receiving the advice from the cabinet only then the president can so there also the president's hands are tied he does not have discretionary powers if you want to talk about a situation where he has discretionary power it is where uh, a sitting prime minister or a sitting government has failed for example let's say uh, there was a situation where uh, uh, where indira gandhi was assassinated and there you know there was a re- there was a requirement of choosing a new leader to become the prime minister in those situation or a new government to form so the, there the president can decide which party to be invited to form the government if a particular sitting government fails or dissolves in the lok sabha all right there the president holds the power to determine which party to be invited or which leader to be invited to form the government except for these two or one or two situations where the president can decide on his own what to do most of the times in majority of the cases 99% of the cases if you read out the constitution you will understand that president is acting on advice of the cabinet the constitution itself uh, says that it is i think it is article 72 or 75 i'm not really sure it's somewhere in 70s one of the articles in the constitution says that the president shall act on the advice of the cabinet headed by the prime minister meaning the president does not have a lot of power so that's the reason why we say that the president in india is actually a ceremonial position uh, he does not have any meaningful powers who is the most powerful political executive uh, a political executive member in india it is undoubtedly it's a prime minister prime minister is undoubtedly the most powerful man in india in terms of political power he 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 actually if you look at the prime minister's powers he actually holds a lot of power if he is a very strong leader then he 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 can definitely gain up a lot of power as per our constitution so prime minister is definitely the most powerful political executive and president is more more or less a head of the state that is a name given to his post but at the end of the day he is just a ceremonial post holder all right 
So the reason why I said this is because in parliament, we, we will see both president, we will see the prime minister, we'll see the cabinets, we will see the members of parliament, we will see the nominated members, all of these people combined to form the parliament, right? Now the question is, uh, why did we actually, uh, so let's just take up the slides for you, hold on. <clears throat> By the way, the parliament is a topic where you may have a lot of doubts. Please uh, feel free to ask whatever the doubts, like because, uh, uh, these are topics which you may not have learned in detail in previous classes. Uh, has it been taken before you? Has it has it been taken before? Just tell me if it has been taken, then I wouldn't be wasting. Has it been taken before? Been in Parliament? No. All right. Good. Right. So what are we learning today? We'll be understanding the evolution of Indian Parliament. We will see how parliamentary democracy actually evolved in India. The decline of Indian Parliament, that is a very, very important topic for you your uh, political science optionals. Every year there is a question regarding the Indian parliament. And this year there was a question on decline of parliament. Uh, where every alternative year, more or less every alternative year, there is a question on decline of parliament. In some or the other way, there will be a question connecting to the decline of Indian parliament. So the decline of Indian parliament is one of the key areas. If you learn thoroughly, then it is a sure shot question that you might get in the UPSC optionals exam, right? So that we will learn, we will learn why is there is a why there is a decline of Indian Parliament and then the role of opposition, right? And especially in today's political circumstances, the, the role of opposition is in news every day because uh, we see how the BJP government has a brutal majority in both in, in Lok Sabha and more or less a very very safe majority in Rajya Sabha as well, right? So we have to see what is the role of opposition in today's political scenario. What is the problems with the opposition that we have? Uh, what should be the reforms that should be brought in the parliament and the various other issues. All right. So this, this topic is going to be really interesting, provided you participate very actively. So I would, I would request you all to leave your all your inhibitions, uh, participate actively, just unmute yourself wherever you want. Just uh, stop me whenever you have questions. Tell me your views and opinion and ask me, ask freely your questions. All right. Don't, uh, you know, uh, feel hesitant to ask your questions. Right. Now, the first question again is why did we go with parliamentary democracy or a parliamentary system over a presidential system for example we had people who were looking at govern uh, types of government all over the world we looked at america america has a presidential system right there is a president there is this executive uh, cabinet which is headed by the president and then there is a legislative which is different totally different from the executive which is headed by the congress and the senate that is the u.s system so we could have followed the presidential system probably in india but we went with the British system of parliamentary democracy. Now, what do you think are the reasons why we went with parliamentary democracy in India? Any possible answers? Why the reason why we went with a parliamentary democracy in India? Why, why, wouldn't the, you know, why didn't we choose presidential, presidential system or why didn't we choose any other forms of system? Like we had a lot of other choices. For example, uh, it is said that during, uh, you know, the, it was a uh, option by uh, Mountbatten. Mountbatten was essentially very, very troubled by the fact that he could not find a political solution to India and Pakistan's problems. So essentially, uh, he did not suggest this to Nehru because he knew that if he had suggested this to Nehru, Nehru would have become violent. Like uh, the reason was one of the plans, not by Mountbatten, I think it was by Lord ba uh, Babel, who was the governor general. He felt he felt that India should be balkanized. Balkanization of India meaning. Uh, dividing it India into multiple different countries. So imagine Kerala becoming a different country, Tamil Nadu becoming a different country, Madhya Pradesh and Central India becoming a different nation, Jammu and Kashmir a different nation. So India was too large a nation. So British, some of the British scholars or some of the British governor generals, I think it was Lord Babel, 
who felt that there should be a balkanization of india so india could have actually split up into multiple nations right uh, or we could have also had a system like how uh, like australia or canada had in the earlier we could have been a dominion of uh, uk meaning we could have been a free country but at the end of the day we owe our allegiance to uk or uk being the top for like a like a godfather to this nation so that would have been a system but amongst all this system we chose a parliamentary system now why did we choose a parliamentary system over a presidential system or other forms of government okay waiting for your views maybe the people thought that if the president was given all the power it mm-hmm. may turn back into authoritarian form of government okay uh, so in a presidential system we know that the president holds immense powers especially in uh that's a reason why in united states of america we see the president is one of the most powerful political personalities in the arena but uh the fact that they have a uh, responsible congress and a senate ensures that any law that is being agreed by the president needs to be passed in both congress and senate so there is a system of checks and balances to ensure that the president does not turn out into a very powerful man but yes uh there is a reason similar to this why we chose parliamentary system one of that one of the reason is why because parliamentary system is more accountable to the people or to the citizens of india than a presidential why because when you have a parliamentary system they meet every day and ensure that the government is accountable to the legislature that is why we see parliamentary sessions every day right where the government actually presents their law to the other mps which represents the other citizens of the country and ensure that they are telling or justifying their actions in the parliament meaning any action taken by the government needs the approval of the legislature so the government cannot take actions on its whims and fancies or according to its own liking and come up with any goddamn law right so it has to ensure that it needs the approval of the legislature the approval of the legislature meaning approval of the citizens of india so it will be a more accountable system that was one reason because a parliamentary system is a system which is more accountable to the legislature and the people of india more than the presidency or any other forms of system a parliamentary system is one of the most accountable system right that's one second anything any other ideas think generally think these are reasons which does not require a lot of analytical knowledge of political science guys just think about india you will know the answer think about the place you live in why do you think what are the benefits of parliament us people who are about 18 years old who are i'm sure many of you have would have voted in the previous panchayat raj institution elections pri elections has anyone voted here yet i'm sure all of you have are about the voting age but has anyone voted yet yes sir yes, yes sir exactly sir meaning you are all people who have a voting rights so des- especially the fact that you have voting rights shows that you are a part of parliamentary democracy in india so you should be knowing why is parliamentary why do we have a parliamentary democracy in india and why is it a better form of government what are its benefits over the other system just think logically you don't need to learn more about it but yeah what do you guys think much more participation yes uh, excellent uh, the fact that india is a dina says that there will be much more participation yes true why why would there be much more participation because of the fact that india is a land of diversities i have been telling this from many classes india is a land of diversities it represents various societies traditions communities so we need a system where maximum amount of people are represented in the party in the political system so parliamentary system provides that opportunity to ensure that maximum number of people is represented or every section of the community has a fair representation in the parliament that's the reason why you see that there are even nominated members in the in the rajya sabha why do you have nominated members in the rajya sabha for example you see famous personalities in rajya sabha like sachin tendulkar 
or you see uh, other film stars or celebrities or scientists or even people who are from social service in Rajya Sabha. Why, why do we have a concept of nominated members in Rajya Sabha? It is because of the fact that the political system understands that people who are not just politicians, people who are not just politicians should also have a representation in parliament so that they can come up with their own views. Right. So to increase the amount of representation, we have a, a parliamentary system which is much better than uh, other systems. Aknivesh says that people can communicate with PM through MPs. True. Uh, that's one of the reasons like uh, uh, the reason, the fact that why we have an MP system or why we have an MLA system in state and state is because people can express their aspirations, their needs through their own MPs who represent their constituencies and, and understand and ensure that their views, their concerns are represented in the parliament through their MP. For example, you see how uh, different MPs uh, representing different constituencies uh, tell the problems their people face in their constituencies in the Lok Sabha. We don't see a lot of MPs doing that, but because they don't come to the looks about in the first place, that's a different case altogether. But at the end of the day, the theoretical understanding is that they have to come to the parliament, they have to communicate their, the issues of the people who lives in the constituency in the parliament and ensure that it's, it's addressed. And that's the ideal way. And that's one of the reasons why we went for parliamentary system, because if it is a presidential system, it will be president, a group of uh, executive members who are assisting the president and they will be choosing all the decisions, right? There won't be an understanding of the problems in the country. So that's the reason why we have parliamentary democracy. Good. Anything else? Anything else? Less chance of exploitation. Less chances of exploitation. Like uh, what type of exploitation are you referring to? If there is parliamentary form, there are much opposition uh, to the ruling parties rather than the presidential form. All right. So, so you're saying there that are... there is a much more uh, system of checks and balances where you uh, try to uh, you know avoid the corruption in the government where you keep the government always uh, responsible or answerable to the people of India. True, that's one more thing. That's the reason why we first said that it is more it is a it is a more accountable system. The government will always be answerable. That is why we always see the MP is always flagging up the irregularities in the government, the corruption scandals in the government, ensuring that the government is answerable to the people. If it is presidential system, it takes up a lot of time to uncover the corruption in India. We see a lot of corruption scenes being uncovered in parliament. We saw how the Colgate scam was ensured uh, uh, the 2G, 3G scam in India. That was the Commonwealth scam. Or the, even the, the, you know, we had also issues regarding the Rafal jets deal that was based in the parliament about how there was a particular corruption involving the Rafal jets, a potential corruption, I'm not sure. I don't think the Supreme Court agreed with it, but at the end of the day, there was a situation. So it is a way of ensuring that there is a system of checks and balances to ensure that the government is kept in check or the corruption is reduced through. Excellent. Good. Anything more, guys? Anything more? Okay. So let's see what all we have. So, uh, Okay, wait. Uh, why, you, you told me why parliamentary democracy is better than the other forms of government. Right. Uh, that's one thing. There are also some other few other reasons why we went with parliamentary system as a preferred form of system soon after independence. The most important one among them is the same is, is the fact that we had experience with parliamentary system and than other forms of government before. Why? During the British rule or while we had the colonial rule, we had a parliamentary system in India. Essentially, Indians did not have a huge representation. I think Indians were only given a limited representation. But the way the Britishers held rule in India was more or less like a parliamentary system. We had a cabinet system where the governor general of the, the, the British government were the headed or the viceroy was the head of the central government. We had a central legislative assembly which had representatives of the princely states, of the people of India, of the Madras presidency, Bombay presidency, 
Calcutta presidency were being represented in the legislative assembly and we had a parliamentary system similarly we had a parliamentary uh, state legislative system in other princely states and other uh, presidency system, presidencies of the british parliament the presidencies of the indian state so there was more or less a similar form of parliamentary system during the time of british rule that existed in india so it was easier for us to continue that system even after india. so we did not have to think more about another system thinking about an entirely new system and you know trying to implement it it will take a lot of time we already had experience with parliamentary system that is why uh, we knew that uh, the uh, you know even before we had a parliamentary system we had indians who were speakers of the british uh, who uh, indians who were uh, posted as speakers of the legislative assemblies during the british india for example sardar vallabhbhai patel's brother vithalbhai patel vithalbhai patel was the first speaker of the legislative assembly in british india right we had people like uh, nehru we had people like jinnah we had people like uh, uh, you know uh, c rajagopalachari and we had other leaders who were there in the indian national movement representing various states and various presidency in the british parliamentary system that was existing in british india so we had a parliamentary system uh, uh, you know more or less but it was not entirely democratic because there the governor general or the viceroy had a lot of powers had a lot of overriding powers so even if the parliament decided a few decisions the viceroy could override those decisions right so more or less it was more powers with the british uh, officials but at the end of the day we had a, a similar system of parliamentary system during the time of british rule so it was easier for us to continue that system even after the british rule right and like you said parliamentary system is more accountable government is more accountable to the legislature on a day to day basis like we have to uh, you know uh, present the businesses of the government on day to day basis day to day basis to the parliament so it will be more accountable the government will be more answerable right and parliamentary system is a better form of government considering the diversity because various groups can be represented all these are the research you told that's the reason why i asked you to say the answers because whatever you say will be there on the slides this is very logical right but when we had the parliamentary system or when we decided to introduce a parliamentary system a lot of the western scholars were uh, very apprehensive like they were uh, very pessimistic about the fact that india was going with a parliamentary now why were they uh, apprehensive of the parliamentary system one thing is the fact that there is a very uh, famous political scholar called morris jones he has analyzed indian parliamentary and he has written uh, you know a variety of books on the indian parliamentarism so according to him and other a few other scholars they all were very apprehensive or rather pessimistic about the indian parliament why were they very optimistic or having a negative feeling about the same it was because of the fact that the idea of parliamentary democracy was essentially western in origin because it was not an indian idea because india never had a system of parliamentary democracy in the past most of the times indian rulers were of an autocratic nature they were monarchs we were ruled by dynasties uh, we did not have the ideas of liberty equality fraternity all these ideas were foreign to us right these were ideas which uh, arose in western countries or european countries or even usa europe uk france germany these were the countries where such ideas were rising so adopting such a foreign idea to a country like india which is highly traditional right which has gone through a lot of dynasties and kings and queens will it survive in india that was a question or will it probably gain acceptance in india that was the primary concern of the people or rather the western scholars so they were not really confident about the fact that india will sustain a parliament and one of the reasons for the same was the fact that idea of parliamentary democracy in india was essentially of western and old second one 
is lack of enough experience. A lot of people in India did not have experience with parliamentary democracy because Indian population, a large section of Indian population had this attitude of obedience towards the rule. Whatever the rulers say, whatever the rulers, uh, uh, you know, come up with the judgment, they are bound to agree to it. There was no culture of, you know, uh, protesting against the ruler's judgment. For example, if a king or a queen comes up with a decision, the Indian population or rather the population which lived in that region called India right now were used to obey. They did not have an obey to descend it. So there was lack of enough experience among the politicians, first of all. And secondly, among Indians as well. The normal citizens also did not have enough experience on how to deal with parliament because they never lived under a democracy before. So uh, the idea of democracy itself was very foreign to the people of India. So they were they were very pessimistic. They were like, okay, if you try to impose such a new system on a very traditional society, will it survive or not? That was a question. Or will India stay as the same? Or will India be able to carry on with the system for a long time? That was their concern. Third one, as we said, we went with parliamentary system because we have diversity. Now, the same diversity in India will itself be a problem for parliamentary system. Why? Because decisions will be difficult to be taken. It will take a lot of time to take decisions. Uh, we cannot apply a law uniformly to every part of the country because everywhere people follow different lifestyles. Everywhere people follow different languages. Everywhere people follow different traditions, food style, lifestyles, you know, uh, languages, cultures, traditions, religions. We have differences everywhere. So in such a country, if you try to impose a parliamentary system, will the decisions be ever taken in a fast manner? Or will it be will we be ever able to uh, you know run the administration in a smooth manner or in a fast and efficient manner so these were the concerns and one of the another important reason was the fact that india was a country where people were always greedy for power because india was always ruled by kings and queens who were always engaged in fighting with other neighboring nations engaged in wars india is a country where we had seen a lot of war battle of panipats the three battle of panipats the, the, the Mysore War, the, uh, you know, the Bengal War of Independence. So India is a country where we have seen innumerable amount of war. So war is essentially a result of, you know, the result for, you know, earning for more power or that want for more power. So the competition for power is within the blood of every Indian. So if you try to impose a parliamentary system on a society which is greedy for power, won't it create a situation of corruption or won't it create a situation where people are always competing for power. These were things that actually disturbed Western scholars. They were like, okay, now we have a new country in the world because India was not a country in the world till then. India was a country which was under the colonial rule of UK. So it was known as a territory of UK. It is a part of UK. Now India is a new country. Now a new country is being formed in the world. Now will this country sustain or will this country become a success was the concern of the Western scholars. And according to them, it won't become a success because the idea of parliamentary democracy was Western in origin. It was not an Indian idea. We did not have enough experience to handle parliamentary democracy. The scale of diversity was too large that administration could be run smoothly. Possibility of extreme competition for power because we were a traditional society and lack of an efficient opposition. Why did we have? Why did we not have an efficient opposition soon after independence? Can anyone tell me why did not? Why didn't we have an efficient opposition soon after? Uh, independence. Can anyone think and tell me the logical reasons? That's again a logical thing to answer. Why did we have a good opposition soon after independence? Soon after Congress system. Okay. So Mekha says uh, the fact that, yeah, uh, Anand, you want to say? Sir, I think it is because Nehru was the most charismatic leader in that time and Nehru was supporting Congress okay. and everyone only respected Nehru. So okay. everyone also respected Congress. Okay. All right. 
So Mega Mega was saying that there was a Congress system in the country, and that's the exact word also because Congress system was essentially referring to a situation where Congress was the most predominant party in India. Why? Because it was the leader of the Indian National Movement for Freedom. Indian National Movement for Freedom was Congress, and Congress represented India's aspiration for freedom, and that was a truth which we could not deny. And that's the reason why there was the famous, uh, I think uh, there was a the scholar which we were discussing about Morris Jones or it was Granville Austin. I don't remember. One of the scholars essentially told India was Congress and Congress was India soon after independence because the entire India's aspiration for freedom, India's goal for freedom was represented by Indian National Congress. So when that particular party is coming to power as the first, uh, you know, as forming the first party or as forming the first government in post-independent India. Most of the people, most of the entire part, political uh, pe uh, people who came from different political ideologies, very marginal, and most of the people were under Congress. Like for example, both the right, the left, and the center people were under the Congress itself. Congress was called as an umbrella party, or it was called as a catch-all party. Why? Because it represented the entire ideology of Indians, and it was supposed to represent the Indian population. There were only a very few other parties which were apart, which were separated from Congress and stood as independent parties. For example, we had the Communist Party of India (CPI). That's why we had the first opposition leader. The first opposition leader of India was from Communist Party of India, Sri A.K. Gopalan. A.K. Gopalan was the first uh, opposition, right? So he came from Communist Party of India. We had Praja Socialist Party. We had Congress Socialist Party. We had, uh, uh, you know, uh, later on, uh, though it was not a party, then we had. Uh, you know, ideological forefathers of this party is called Jansang. Jansang came later under, uh, Sh you know, Shamprasad Mukherjee, but Jansang was there, which later became BJP. So we had these very, very small parties back then, but 90% of the population, or rather I would say more than that probably, uh, were under the influence of Congress. So when you have a system like that, it is very difficult to have an opposition which is very effective and very strong. And that is not healthy for a parliamentary system, according to the Western scholars. Why? Because parliamentary system can only sustain if there is an effective opposition. Why do we need an effective opposition? To ensure that there is a proper system of checks and balance. And why didn't we have a proper opposition? Another reason was not just among them, as Anand said, Nehru was a tall leader. Nehru was a very influential leader who handled the entire Congress. So even people within the Congress did not have the... Uh, did not have, let's say, did not have the courage or the grit to probably go up against Nehru and, uh, you know, uh, what do you say, defend his or go against his policies because everyone was under the aura, everyone was under the charisma of Nehru that whatever were the policies of Nehru became the policies of the Congress, right? So, and Nehru was also a leader which was revered or respected by people across India, from north to south, east to west. Nehru was a very favored leader. Nehru was seen with a lot of respect. Though his policies were being criticized by some people, people who do not agree with him, even those people respected him, right? Uh, I don't know if you, uh, I think I've seen, if you go back and check out, uh, you know, Vajpayee's speeches, you can see Vajpayee was a BJP leader. He, he was a part of Jansang before. Even a leader from BJP like uh, Vajpayee had immense respect for Nehru because there was a kind of a bipartisan relationship during that time. And there was beyond the party lines, people used to respect uh, Nehru. So Nehru's charisma was also another reason why there was a not, lot more opposition uh, against his policy. Though we had opposition, but not very effective. So these things actually, uh, these were the reasons why, uh, you know, the Western scholars or the scholars from the Western world, from, especially from USA and Europe, were 
predicting India's failure as a country. They say that India will not sustain for a long time. India will definitely break up into multiple countries. Many of the Western scholars predicted balkanization. Uh, balkanization of India, the reason why we say balkanization was before the Balkan countries were uh, a, a, an entirely a huge part of different empires. It was a one particular unified region. But later on, post the World War, uh, towards the end of, towards the uh, beginning of the fall of Soviet Union, we saw these Balkan countries becoming small, small, small countries. I don't know if you look at the world map, you can see a lot of these countries like Czechoslovakia, uh, you can uh, you can see uh, Monte Serbia and Montenegro, Croatia, uh, you can see uh, Bos uh, Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina. These were countries which are part of the Balkan region, which later formed into multiple small, small countries. And Western scholars predicted the same with India as well. They said that India will never sustain as a large country or one one unified country, it will break into multiple parts because the entire philosophy or the basis or the foundation of parliamentary democracy on which India is built is shaken. It is not perfect. India will break it into small pieces. Now, that was a prediction of the Western scholars. And the reason why they mentioned this is because they found the following problems with the parliamentary system. right? And they also said that the bureaucracy, like for example, we are all aspiring to be a part of the bureaucracy of Indian civil services. They say that there was a lack of independent thinking because back then and to an extent today also, the bureaucracy is, is, is devoid of independent thinking because they are always uh, you know, uh, waiting for the orders from the political executive. They are uh, dependent on the orders from the political executive to implement the decision. So the bureaucracy back then entirely did not have any level of independent thinking. They were just taking orders from their political leaders and they were just implementing. Uh, well, in some other countries, you can see that the bureaucracy holds a lot more independent powers. Well, in India, it's very limited. In India, the bureaucracy is expected to toe the lines of the government uh, to be, uh, you know, uh, implementing whatever the government decisions are. So these were the reasons, right? So I will come to it later. So these were the reasons why Western scholars were apprehensive of the parliamentary system. Now, coming on uh, to the next one is the evolution of the parliamentary democracy in India. For example, parliamentary democracy is such a system where uh, the democracy is seen to be very robust. When will a parliamentary democracy be successful? It will become successful only when there is a lot of deliberation, a lot of discussion, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of time being put into deciding every policy and law. That's the reason why we have parliamentary. If we wanted fast, hasty decisions, then we should have not gone with parliamentary democracy. We should have gone with an authoritarian system. We should have gone with a monarchy system where decisions are just taken with a flip of a hand. For example, decision making in China is very easy. Why? Because it's not a democratic country. They don't have a system of parliamentary democracy. Though they say that the Communist Party has a parliament and we take the decisions. At the end of the day, it's a very few people who take the decisions. And for them, decision making comes like this. And that's the reason why they can build a hospital in 100 days. Or they can, they can build a hospital in 10 days if they want. Why? Because they don't care for the workers' rights. They don't care for the workers' aspirations. No one is going to protest. Whereas in India, why we, the reason why we went for parliamentary democracy is because of the fact that if we want to take a decision, it should not be a hasty one. It should be discussed, be deliberated. It should be debated. And then the best decision should be taken. And that's the reason why we say democracy is probably one of the, you know, the, one of the most better forms of government. I won't say it's the best form of government. Uh, because there's always problems with democracy as well. And if you ask if there, is a, if there is any form of government which is the best, there is no answer to that. There is only better than the other. So democracy is better than the other form of governments because it has a lot of aspirations of people involved. So a parliamentary democratic system will only become successful 
if there is a considerable amount of deliberation and debate among or among the uh, political uh, parties as well as the political representatives now the parliamentary democracy in india can be divided into three phases the first phase was until the 1960 that's called the nehruvian phase or while the time nehru was there during this phase the parliamentary democracy in india had a you know a certain special features now what was the special features like we discussed before there was a lack of strong opposition like the as you said as both meka and anand mentioned uh, the the charisma of nehru was essentially very very uh, overarching so people did not have the there was uh, the opposition was rendered effective uh, less effective right and the close relationship between party and government now what do you mean by close relationship between party and government the inc was the forming the government at the same time the government was very much related or closely interrelated with the party leaders now whenever a party forms a government both party and the government should stay a separate entity if they are closely interrelated then it will lead to a lot of bias now when the government under international congress was formed by nehru nehru's inc and nehru's indian government was closely interrelated because party and the government is essentially the same people who were running the party were the same people who were running the government also like nehru was both the president of the inc at that point of time he was also the prime minister of india so there was a close relationship between party and government so whatever the party decisions were it had an impact on the government policies as well which may lead to problems so that was the problems in the parliamentary democracy in india during the initial days and uh, this is a term which political scholars use uh, called as concealed dictatorship of nehru now why do they use the word dictatorship is not in the actual sense of the word dictatorship because dictatorship is essentially a negative word where one leader takes all the decisions and entirely goes in civil liberties you cannot call nehru a dictator but the way he carried on the rule was in such a way that there were no other people in the party who could actually counter him first thing he was entirely had a grand vision of india his ideas of india he had knowledge in almost every other possible sectors which his other party members did not probably uh, like patel had a huge uh, influence in unifying india but even patel did not have expertise in other areas for example nehru was an expert in foreign relations and that's the reason ministry of external affairs was just uh, was just a ministry which was just formed for name sake because it was nehru who was undertaking the entire foreign relations nehru was an expert in domestic affairs he had a grand idea for the economic development of india that's the reason why india had a socialistic model of development Nehru was a expert in handling uh, insurgencies in the northeast that's the reason northeast leaders still respect nehru so nehru's expertise in various fields his expert his relationship with foreign leaders were respected that he sort of had a dictatorship sort of rule in india why because it was him who was taking almost every major decision though he had his own close advisors like uh, patel he had uh, advisors like vk krishna menon every one of there was in at the end of the day it was nehru's decision which was staying on the top now this was a uh, if you look at parliamentary democracy this is not a very conducive thing why parliamentary democracy will only become successful when every other cabinet minister when every other members of parliament has an equal power or rather has a say in the government policy but when nehru was such a tall leader the others did not have much of a role to play and that was also a problem and the social environment in the country was also sort of very unstable why india was undergoing a lot of poverty so it was soon after independence you know britishers had left india with very less income millions of population were just going uh, was uh, you know suffering from poverty we had two great great famines before the parliament before the uh, independence which affected india to a great extent right uh, uh, you know the economic situation in india was very very pathetic 
So social environment in the country was also not very conducive. So all this had a bearing on the evolution of parliamentary democracy, right? So these were the features of parliamentary democracy in the Nehruvian phase. Now comes the uh, the next phase, which is the 1960s to 1990, which was after the time of Nehru. Meaning, the Nehru passed away uh, soon after uh, the Indo-China War, because it is said that uh, Nehru never expected uh, you know China to attack India because he saw Indo-China relationship as a relationship for years to come, because he expected India-China solidarity will be an example for the entire uh, world of the Asian solidarity. He saw India-China relationship as an example of Asian solidarity, because both were new countries, both were colonial countries, both had come up, both had come into freedom out of the repression of the colonial powers. One became a socialist country, another became a communist country, right? So though they had slight differences, Nehru saw China as a you know, as a partner uh, to carry out peace in the area. But when China attacked India in the Indochina Indo war, uh, Nehru was completely devastated. It had a huge bearing on his health. It is said, it is said that uh, if you read the books, it is said that after Indochina war, Nehru's health deteriorated very fast. His health issues uh, just became worse in a matter of years and passed away. So after the uh, death of Nehru, it was a time of political vacuum in the country because it sort it created a sort of confusion as to who will take up that huge responsibility of filling the gap that Nehru had actually filled. Because Nehru was an omnipotent force. Nehru was present everywhere. Nehru was present in external affairs. Nehru was present in home affairs. Nehru was present in economic financial affairs. Nehru was present in almost every sector of India. He had a grand vision for the development of India. But after Nehru's death, what was the question? Who will fill up the gap? And there was no other leader for the next few years who could fill up the gap. Uh, even though Lal Bahadur Shastri came, Shastri was a very nice man in the sense like he had a, he was a very simple man, though he was not as, uh, you know, uh, as much as of a visionary like uh, uh, Nehru was. But Shastri had an idea for India's development, but he could not fill the gaps uh, Nehru left. So India was also undergoing a political instability during that time because this moment, created the breakdown of the Congresses. Till then, Congress was a one huge entity. But soon after Nehru's passing away, problems started arising within Congress. There were a few factions within the within the Congress who wanted to gain power. Shastri was, uh, was a prime minister, which was a compromised candidate, but there were other factions within Congress which wanted to gain power. There was one section which was led by Moraji Desai. Moraji Desai was known to be one of the most prominent ruler, who prominent leader who was expected to become the next prime minister. But there was another lady who was just expecting to gain more and more power out of this. And it was no, none other than the daughter of Nehru himself, himself Srimati Indira Gandhi. She was uh, the leader who arose as the successful one uh, of this conflicts. Uh, this led to the split of Congress. Congress was essentially split internally into Congress I faction and Congress, uh, I think it was Congress syndicate and Congress I. One was about Congress Indira and another one was Congress Syndicate, which was led by people such as Moraji Desai and everyone like that. Right. So there were uh, internal rivalry for power between in, within the Congresses. And that had a lot of repercussions in the Indian political system. Now, why was it cre creating problems in the Indian political system? Because now people started understanding that Congress is not the only option they have. Right, because people within the Congress who represented various ideologies. Because, for example, before, uh, just soon after the uh, independence, the Dalits, 
the OBCs, the SCs, STs, every was everyone was under Congress. They did not feel a requirement for a separate political party. They felt that okay, Congress represented all our ideologies. That is why we call Congress as an umbrella party because they stood for all ideologies except for Communist Party of India because Communist Party of India stood for the extreme left. Now they were representing the communist ideology, but otherwise Congress represented socialism. Congress represented center right ideology. Congress represented centrist ideology. Congress represented center left as well. So. Congress was known as a party which represented multiple ideologies. So people who belong to various sections of society, be it the upper caste, be it the Dalits, be it the SCs, be it the STs, be it anyone in India felt that Congress was a representing party for them. But that was during the time of Nehru. But after the death of Nehru, when there was internal rivalry within the Congress leaders for power, many of the people within the Congress felt that they had to step away from Congress and form their own parties. Now, that is the place, that is a time in history where you see there was a growth of other regional parties. We saw the growth of Jansang. Jansang became a separate party. There was a growth of other parties like Congress Socialist Party was forming under Jayaprakash Narayan. That was a separate party. Praja Socialist Party. All these socialist parties were slowly, slowly moving away from Congress. We see uh, at a later stage, towards the end of 90, towards the end of 1980s, we see uh, Dalits forming their own party called as the BSP, Bahujan Samaj Party, which was uh, formed by a leader called uh, Kanshiram. Kanshiram uh, was the uh, foundational forefather of the party called Bahujan Samaj Party. That the, it was a very strong party in UP. It represented the needs of the Dalit community, right? And there was another leader who is who is one of the most famous leader of Bahujan Samaj Party. Can anyone tell me who was the other leader of uh, the BSP? Anyone is aware of such thing? Who is the other uh, most famous leader of Bahujan Samaj Party, the BSP? Heard about this leader from UP called Mayawati? No, sir. You've not heard about, heard about Mayawati. Mayawati is one of the most famous leaders in uh, Uttar Pradesh who stood for the, uh, the ideas of Congress. I mean, like... Uh, I don't know if you have read the newspapers. There was this time in UP where Mayavati just built her own statues. If you go to UP, you will see a numerous number of statues of Mayavati. What did she do? She built the statues of Kanshira. She built the statues of Mayavati herself and she built the statues of the elephant because elephant is the symbol of their party. Right. So you can read about Mayavati, but Mayavati was one of the most tall leaders. Mayavati was the prodigy or rather uh, she was the disciple of Kanshiram. So Kanshiram was the foundation forefather of this party called Bhajan Samaj Party. Earlier, all these people were all part of Congress system. They all believed that Congress was a party which represented all their interests. But slowly, after the death of Nehru, after the internal factions, war factions between Congress, the fights between Indira Gandhi, Moraji Desai, the socialist party feeling that they need a separate interest. So slowly, 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 regional parties started gaining relevance. For the first time, Congress started losing elections in the state. For example, till 1967, till 1967, Congress was winning all states. It was a Congress ruling center. It was a Congress ruling states as well, except for a few states like Kerala. Kerala was a state where the Communist Party came into rule in, from the very beginning itself. But there also, the Communist Party fell soon after because the president's rule was imposed arbitrarily by the Congress government in the union, uh, union government. And then there came the Congress government. But except for Kerala, most of the other states had a Congress government, both at center and at uh, both at center and state. But till after 1967, situation slowly started changing. Different parties started winning elections in state, apart from Congress. So Congress understood that it is losing the ground in state elections as well. Many regional parties were gaining relevance. For example, AIDMK in Tamil Nadu, DMK and AIDMK, Anna Dravida Muneta Kadagam in 
uh, in Tamil Nadu represented the other backward communities, OBC sections of the community. And it was uh, led by a leader called Peri uh, Periyar. I don't know if you know, call, know about this leader called Periyar or the Ivi Ramaswami Nayakar. Ivi Ramaswami Nayakar was the leader who actually led the movement for the uh, against the Brahminic community in Tamil Nadu. And it led to the growth of parties such as DMK. Now, such regional parties started gaining relevance in many states. And Congress started losing elections. And it lost the possibility of forming government in eight states. So this was a breakdown of the Congress system. It was after, it was late 1960s, it was during 1967, that the breakdown of the Congress system started. Now, along with this change, there was also another few changes that have started occurring in the uh, Indian political system. What was it? There was a beginning of defections within the parliament. What do you mean by defection? What do you mean by defection? <laughs> Any idea? What is defection? Have you heard this term defections before? Uh -huh. All right. So defection is where a political member, like for example, he might be elected from uh, Indian National Congress as a member of parliament. Soon after he is elected as a member of parliament from under the Congress ticket, he resigns his Congress position and he jumps to the other party. That Now that is not allowed. That's a different thing. That was after the anti-defection law was brought in. But before the anti-defection law was brought in, there were a huge number of defections. People used to get elected under a different party. And they used to resign, use, they used to jump from another party to another party because they, they were given other options, they were given other offers by the government. Now, this led to break, this led to dissolution or failure of government very frequently. For example, today Congress will come into power. Let's say Congress comes into power in us with 30 MLAs. Tomorrow, 26 of these MLAs will jump to the other party. Suddenly, the Congress which formed the government with 30 MLAs just falls down. Now the other party will, uh, you know, with the help of these defected MLAs, will form the government. So such defections started arising or probably started increasing in India for the first time during the 1960s to 1990s period, right? So why was this particular uh, defection system starting? It was because of the fact that there was internal rivalries among regional parties. Regional parties were increasing. Parties other than Congress was gaining relevance. Now people had choice. People felt that we do not need to stick with Congress anymore. We can go further. So there was breakdown of Congress system. There was beginning of defection. And there was concentration of power by the Indira Gandhi government. Indira Gandhi government was gaining a lot of power uh, during this phase because uh, she was known as a very, uh, I would say, she was known as a leader uh, who, who, was, uh, who had all these autocratic tendencies. Uh, though she was known as a very famous leader among the uh, masses, she was also a leader who concentrated power within her cabinet extremely. She never, uh, in, in, the, in fact, many of her ministers did not even know what steps she was going to take because she was never, uh, uh, you know, uh, a leader who discussed all her uh, moves or all her policies with other ministers in the cabinet. She had a close group of confidants or advisors with whom she discusses. Uh, apart from that, she never discusses. E even during her role, even during her uh, role in India, it was called as a, uh, her cabinet was called as a kitchen cabinet. Why was it called as a kitchen cabinet? Because it was Indira Gandhi and a few trusted advisors who was ruling India. It involved her son, Sanjay Gandhi, who was not even a member of parliament back then. Sanjay Gandhi was not even a member of parliament, but she ha he had a lot of power in determining the policies. So Sanjay Gandhi was there in a close group of advisors. And then there was this uh, advisor of Indira Gandhi called as P.N. Haksar. P.N. Hatsar was a very famous close advisor of Indira Gandhi. So even her ministers didn't even have the power to actually uh, gain the ad uh, advice or rather uh, to know what Indira Gandhi was doing. So it was Indira Gandhi and a group of a few advisors who were holding a lot of power in the government. So this all created political instability in the country. You see the emergency that was imposed in India by the growth of corruption. 
that is where the corruption in india started increasing at a multiple level that was not because of indira gandhi government i'm saying the political instability in the country from north to south east to west was creating situations for corruption right uh, and then the failure of government on economic front economically our government is failing uh, i don't know if you remember during 1970s uh, you can ask your parents because uh, they would have lived through that times 1970s were a time where oil prices were rising through the roof there, because there was a uh, there was an arab israel war and as a result uh, arab countries started uh, stopped the production of oil now when they stopped the production of oil oil prices started rising and this had a huge impact on india because oil was very expensive petrol started becoming very expensive india was which was primarily an oil importing nation had a huge inflation there was huge corruption on top of that there was a huge inflation indira gandhi government had a lot of problems because uh, people were protesting against the huge inflation and all of these reasons also led her to impose the emergency because there was a lot of protest going on in the country so the government was a failure on terms of economic front so this was a phase where india was undergoing a lot of political instability now this was a phase 2 now comes the last phase which is the current phase which is in 1990s right so it was in 1990s onwards which was the greatest amount of decline of parliament right now i'll tell you what is the decline of parliament whatever you discussed till now was a decline of parliament what do you mean by decline of parliament decline of parliament essentially means yeah yes was anyone asking right so decline of parliament was basically uh, referring to how parliament was failing in its objectives what are the objectives of parliament parliament is supposed to come up with laws that actually protect the people that actually make the life of the people easier but when that is not able to do the job for which it is being formed then it is called the decline of parliament now why was there a decline of parliament in the second phase after the death of nehru we said that the decline of parliament started because growth of regional parties regional parties were increasing uh, congress system was breaking down there was emergency being imposed economically the congress economically the government was failing lot of protest was happening corruption was increasing all these reasons led to the decline in the quality of parliament now 1990s the situation did not improve at all from 1990s the situation started becoming even more worse why this was the time where the criminalization of indian politics started or rather started increasing what do you mean by criminalization of indian politics can anyone tell me what is criminalization of indian politics what do you mean by criminalization of indian politics criminalization of indian politics basically means where criminals started influencing the indian politics and they started controlling the politics in india or when money power and muscle power started influencing indian politics is called as a criminalization of politics during the time of nehru or during the soon of soon after indian independence there was no there wasn't much concept called criminalization of indian politics because politics was meant for the politicians it was not meant for criminals but soon after 1980s 70s 1990s onwards criminals started increasing criminals uh, influence on indian politics started increasing why because it was criminal money it was the money of the criminals that was flowing in indian politics predominantly it was said that during one at one point of time indian politics was funded by criminal money and it is not much different now also we do we cannot say that indian politics is free from criminalization now indian politics has a lot of criminal money that is flowing from black money from terrorism we, uh, we can say that money that is the same money that is used to fund terrorism in india is also the money that is used to fund political parties in india that is because indian political parties are not bound by the laws of auditing or by the tax laws or anything it has very relaxed laws so no one knows from where the political parties get their money why do they get their money on what conditions who gives them the money now i'll give you a statistics after a few a uh, few moments which will show you what is the impact of criminalization of indian politics now this 
after 1990s is when criminals started influencing because especially in states like jharkhand bihar chatisgarh odisha uh, if not odisha much if you go to the entire country criminals started many people who are very famous criminals before started contesting elections they started getting seats in the uh, legislative assemblies and parliament now why were they given seats it was because they were funding the money they were funding the party because parties were not getting enough funds earlier people used to fund political parties during the time of nehru it was the common man of india who used to fund the political parties because they felt related to the political during the time of indian national movement who do you think gave the um, uh, you know money it was the business groups were there like birlas and tatas used to give the money during the time of indian national movement but even the common people used to sell their own jewelry for the cause of indian political parties but after 1970s 1980s 1990s people felt that even political parties are indulging in corruption so why should we fund so naturally the funding of the political parties came from all these dark shady sources people started feeling that politics is an area where you could make money now that is clear look if you look at there is always a very interesting studies uh, in the first parliament majority of the mps were lawyers or people who are very educated or there were only very few people who were uneducated in the indian parliament but after the first lok sabha if you look at the current lok sabha or if you look at the middle lok sabha you can see that amount of people who are educated has reduced now it is increasing but at the end of the day people who now the largest section of mps come from a, a section called social service many people who have no other jobs people have started started taking politics as the only profession politics is not a profession guys that is one thing that we all have to understand as young generation politics is never a profession politics is, should not be a profession for making money but sadly in india politics has become a profession where people feel that you get into politics you can make a lot of money and the criminalization of indian politics is manifestation of the same because people knew that if i come into politics if i start accepting money from criminals i will get a lot of money i just need to do things that is in favor of them and later on the criminals understood that if we can fund the parties why can't we stand for elections ourselves that was a change earlier they used to only provide the money now they started feeling now they started feeling that if we can provide money for the elections why can't we stand for the election slowly slowly after 1990s we start we start to see that hardcore criminals who are actually indulging in violent crimes like torture kidnapping extortion murder rape genocide are all now part of indian politics and some of them are even standing elections or contesting seats in various constituencies and their and their votes are rigged they actually go and destroy the vote you know calling the the process of or the phenomena of vote vote rigging uh, you know uh, booth both uh, destruction were all coming becoming prevalent it is still there in you know indian states still now you see how uh, i don't know if you have watched this movie uh, various other movies are there where you see criminals just coming over and taking the booths they just rig the votes they just come into the vote, uh, polling stations they stand with their local goons with the guns and they actually look at people and they actually uh, force the people to vote for them and many places in india still this happen people cannot even react to it so criminalization of indian politics started which resulted in decline of parliament because now parliament are actually dominated or actually having a huge presence of criminals and this is why our former vice president hamid ansari says that parliament has become the federation of anarchy federation of anarchy meaning a federation of people where there is lawlessness where there is statelessness because parliament is known to be the temple of lawfulness but now parliament has become the federation of anarchy meaning it has become a place for lawlessness now debates have become rare and informed debates have become even more rare do you see in parliament today 
where you see a lot more informed debate or a chance, you know, chance of you know educated debate, or do you see disruption? How often do you see disruptions in Indian Parliament, or how often do you see debates? Do you see disruptions more than debate, or debate more than disruption in the Parliament today? It is disruptions. You don't see informed debate happening in Parliament. Like not just the union government, just check out the government, uh, state governments. And even Kerala is not, not also uh, is not very different from that. You check in Kerala State Legislative Assembly, there was an unfortunate incident where in Indian Parliament where M- MLAs used to take the chairs of the speaker and used to like destroy the entire uh, you know assets within the you know uh, the State Legislative Assembly. People just unnecessarily create walkouts. People create disruption. People do not allow the other person to speak. You you know if you want to have a clear idea, just watch Lok Sabha TV. If you watch Lok Sabha TV or one of the other instances, you will see where does the debate is happening? Where does the deliberation happen? A member of parliament will stand up to tell something. There will be hundreds of other people just shouting at the top of their voices. You don't even realize what the other person is. The, other, the, the MP or the minister might be speaking a wrong fact or might be speaking an absolutely nonsensical fact. But at the end of the day, you need to have the patience to listen and then counter that argument when your chance comes. But that's not what's happening in the parliament today. People are just shouting at the top of their voices. People just disrupt the parliament unnecessarily. People just create walkouts. People do not come into the parliament for that matter of fact. Many of these great MPs that you select from your constituencies don't even attend your parliament session. If you look at their attendance register, people, there are MPs, there are hundreds of MPs who have less than 30% of attendance. Imagine you are electing them with your valuable votes and you're sending them to parliament and they're not even coming to parliament to, you know, tell their aspirations. They, and if you look at the income of these MPs, you will be, you will be exorbitantly surprised because most of these MPs receive tax, uh, taxless salaries. All their salaries, all their pensions are tax-free. They don't need to pay a dime of tax, income tax on their income. They get food at very subsidized rate. They get MLA quarters or MP quarters at a very, very, very subsidized rate. They don't have to pay. They have a secretarial staff. They have a car. They have telephone bills, which is entirely paid by the government. They have all these facilities. And yet the deliberations or debates that have to happen in the parliament for your aspirations, for your issue are not happening. And this is called the decline of parliament. And if you look, there are a few leaders, scholars who wrote uh, books on the same. There are, uh, you, uh, you have heard this name before, Pradab Banu Mehta. Where did you hear the name Pradab Banu Mehta before? Anyone can tell me, where did you hear the term Pradab Banu Mehta? He criticized principal distance model of seculars. Yes. So Pradab Banu Mehta was one who, who criticized the principal distance model or secular by Rajiv Bhargava. And he says that it is an asymmetrical model, right? Excellent. So Pradab Banu Mehta and Devesh Kapoor, they both wrote a book called Public Institutions in India. The name of the book is Public Institutions. He says, criminalization of Indian politics has made Indian parliament a self-serving institution, meaning that parliament is not there to serve our interest. They are there to serve their own interest. And uh, there is a group of other scholars called as Shankar and Rodriguez. Shankar and Rodriguez gives the following reason. Shankar and Rodriguez are two political scholars. They often write in uh, together. So together they have given the reasons for the decline of parliament. So Shankar and Rodriguez says, the reasons for the decline of parliament is coalition politics, which is true. Think about it. Uh, I'm not talking about the government of the day. Uh, the, the, now the government has a brutal majority in Lok Sabha. They don't have to uh, consult with their coalition partners. But think about the UPA 1, UPA 2 or the NDA government before that. Or soon after 1990s, coalition po- politics started arising because one particular single party could not come into majority. If you look into the UPA government, UPA government is not able to take many decisions at a faster pace because 
there did not there was not proper consensus between the coalition partners if international congress felt that this was the right decision the regional parties did not agree to it the regional parties like trinamool congress aidmk or uh, rjd or uh, bsp were all creating problems within the coalition of the congress system or the upa government that they could not take any decisions and many of the and many a times the people who are at the cabinet had to give away to the whims and fancies of their coalition partners because they were indulging in a lot of other corruption maybe in the upa government it was not the party which at the rule for example let's say that if the congress was not indulging in corruption their coalition partners was indulging in corruption or if if the other if their coalition partners was not indulging in corruption congress was indulging in corruption so what can they do to carry on their work forward with you know with some consensus or agreement they cannot do anything with agreement because there were a problems within the coalition there were multiple factions within the coalition government which were fighting for power essentially they're all agreement they all want a ministerial post they want a place in the cabinet position they want maximum amount of ministerial position they want to hold a lot of power that is only their concern they are not concerned about or, or progressing or rather conducting the government in the proper manner so coalition politics started reasons for the decline of parliament lack of electoral reforms think about the electoral rules in the country it is very very flawed it is flawed in such a high manner that like you know people at the parties who are at the ruling uh, place always has an advantage over the other political parties during the time of elections because the election commission always has a bias or rather i would say there there are allegations against the election election commission telling that they are biased towards the ruling government whether it, whether it is upa whether it is nda whether it is bjp doesn't matter the election commission is created in such a way that the political influence within the election commission is so high that it always takes a line which supports the ruling party and there was only a very few election commissioners who actually stood against the government of the day for example tn sheshan tn sheshan was one of the most powerful or one of the most influential election commissioners who took a very bold stance against the uh, the ruling government he was the one who said that you know you cannot you cannot just paste posters everywhere and wherever you want there should be a ruling system to that he is the one who kept a cap on the election expenditures by the political parties so there were a lot of reforms that was brought in by election commissioners like the initiation but except for a few like him there were no other election commissioners who took a bold stance against the ruling party now this also creates a decline of parliament because election commission forms a very integral part of holding a free and fair election now when they are also influenced by such corrupted parties you cannot expect a huge a progress in the parliamentary system the next one presence of criminals in indian politics i told you how politics in uh, you know criminals in indian politics just affect our uh, parliament politicization of the post of speaker like the speaker in the lok sabha is supposed to be a very impartial man in the sense who is a speaker a speaker is someone who ensures that the sessions of the parliament are undergoing smoothly he may be elected from the ruling party that can happen but at the end of the day he is supposed to be a very neutral party he cannot stay towards his party line he is expected to be a neutral party but most of the times speaker in today's political scenario is a strictly a party man he listens to what his party says he he takes his decisions in a biased manner he takes his decisions are taken out in a manner which holds a lot of bias towards the ruling party now this also creates for example whenever there is a resolution that is passed that is presented by a member of the opposition party the speaker does not accept it or there is a less chance for speaker to accept it by because speaker is from the ruling party so he always wants the ruling party to dominate in the parliament so he does not allow the opposition party to 
probably tell something which is of very importance. And there was only a very, uh, very few speakers who has held a very notable position. I do not know whether you know about this, uh, uh, this uh, speaker called Somana Chatterjee. There was this very famous uh, uh, speaker of Lok Sabha called Somana Chatterjee. Have you heard about him? Does anyone know about Somana Chatterjee? You mean, no? Somana Chatterjee was a speaker of the UPA government. Uh, he was from the Communist Party. Somana Chatterjee was from the Communist Party. And he was known for his neutral position that he takes as a part of speaker. Regardless of the fact that he is a part of the ruling uh, coalition, he took positions that were very neutral. And that is how a speaker should be. Even then, Somna Chatterjee was actually uh, uh, restricted by his party and he was even blamed by the party uh, for taking stances against his own party. While he was a member of Communist Party and when he was a speaker, he took positions against the Communist Party, which grew, uh, which actually uh, drew criticism from his own party, telling that he's a member of our party and how can he do that? He did that because that is what a speaker is supposed to do. A speaker is supposed to be a neutral man. A speaker is supposed to be a person who needs to be bipartisan. He cannot stick to one on his party because he is a speaker. He needs to carry on the proceedings of the parliament uh, free and fair man. But unfortunately, the speaker in India right now is politicized post, not just in the union government, even in state government. So this has to change. And the corruption, the increase in disruptions in parliament were all contributing towards the decline of parliament. So if anyone asks you to write about decline of parliament, <coughs> you can write it in three phases. One is a Nehruvian phase. There was no much decline of parliament, but there were problems like uh, Nehru was the, uh, was the single most powerful leader. There was a lack of efficient opposition. So these were the reasons. But the decline of parliament actually started after 1960 till 1990s, which, uh, yeah, which, uh, which, uh, which lasted till 1990s. And, uh, and the reasons for the decline of parliament during the time of 1960s and 1990s was the breakdown of Congress. Congress started uh, having problems within itself. There were internal faction war, internal war for power between the Congress faction, right? Concentration of power by the Dharangadi government. Corruption was increasing. Rise of regional political parties. Economic problems. Uh, here I mentioned, uh, I did not talk about the total revolution by J.P. Nan. What was total revolution? I told that the government is facing economic problems because oil price was increasing and there was a huge rising inflation. Right now, the Socialist Party led by J.P. Narayan uh, came up with this idea of total revolution. What was total revolution? Total protest against the current government. They fought against, they protested against the rising inflation. They protested against the rising corruption, against the concentration of power by Indira Gandhi. This led Indira Gandhi to imprison a lot of political party members and eventually led to the emergency. So there was a lot of instability in the political system and there was a total revolution or a protest, a call for protest by socialist leaders such as Jayaprakash Narayan. And there was also social movements like uh, anti-inflation movements and Chipko movement. You would have heard about Chipko movement in your earlier classes where uh, Chipko movement was an event led by the tribal farmers in uh, of the Bishnoi community who were against the cutting down of trees. So Chipko movement was a you know, very influential movement in Indian political system. So Indian political system was undergoing a lot of changes and this led to the decline of parliament. And as I, I forgot to mention, the terrorist movements in Punjab, Northeast, the Khalistani terrorism were all leading to the decline in quality of parliament. And finally, uh, and finally uh, in the 1990s, this started increasing at an exorbitant scale criminalization of Indian politics started increasing at a huge scale. Hamid Ansari calls this as the federation of anarchy. He calls parliament 
the federation of anarchy. Debates became rare, informed debates became rarer, you know, uh, and in Pradab Banu Mehta and Devesh Kapoor in their book called Public Institutions in India says criminalization of politics has made Indian parliament a self-serving institution rather than serving the interest of the people. And Shankar and Rodriguez gives the following reasons for the decline of parliament. He says the coalition politics, the lack of electoral reforms, the presence of criminals, politicization of poster speaker, increasing amount of corruption, disruptions in parliament, all, everything actually led to the decline of parliament. So this was a time where Indian parliament was undergoing a huge testing period, right? There was a sense of stability after independence, but soon after the death of Nehru, everything started falling down. Congress started breaking down. Politics started becoming more criminalized. Corruption increased. Rise of regional parties, social movements, anti-inflation movements, all these started leading to the decline of parliament, right? So right now, uh, we'll just take a two-minute break because <clears throat> I've been talking. In between that, if you have any questions, just tell me. I'll just take them for two minutes. Uh, let me know if you have any queries from this, whatever we have learned till now. Anything that you wanted to ask me about or anything that you had uh, queries or regarding or you wanted to share any opinion, or feel free to ask. Uh, you told now politics is not a job. Yeah. Uh, then uh, when a particular government comes into mm. power, uh, all the staffs and persons are according to their assigned according to their political parties, no? Yeah, yeah. On the basis right. of their political. Yeah, yeah, that is correct. So, uh, so you're trying to essentially say that politics. See, when I meant when I said politics is not a job, uh, it was because of the outlook that the people had towards politics. It was mainly because people started seeing politics as an area where they could make money from. And that should not be the entire philosophy that should determine our attitude towards politics. Politics, at the end of the day, should be a service to the society. You become a political leader because of not, not because of your intention to make money. It should be your intention to serve the society. That should be the ideal nature of politics. Like, you look into any other country, I'm not talking about, say, I'm not talking everything is okay in other countries. But outside India, if you look, Every other politician were, were having another set economic stature or a set economic profession before coming into politics. Politics was only a way for them to serve the society or to have a better public outreach. They did not see politics as a way to gain more and more income or an area where they can stay for a long time. For example, in India, it's a tendency that if my father is a politician, that my entire generation who comes after me will be in politics. And it is also, like you mentioned, like whenever a politician comes, he assigns the staff and everything according to their political ideology. Now, that is a very natural step because he wants the staff to assign, uh, he wants, uh, or that particular political leader wants all his staff, all his private secretaries, all his uh, IAS bureaucrats, everyone to be a people who actually shares a camaraderie or shares a rapport with him. Now, that's a natural thing. But at the end of the day, that also creates a situation where all these staff actually does not... Uh, you know, counter their opinion or give their uh, give a constructive criticism to the political leader. They blindly, you know, create an obedience. That's the reason why you see whenever a new political leader comes in, there will be a lot of transfers of IAS officers. There will be a huge trans number of transfers because they want to transfer all those political officers who were having a huge uh, allegiance towards the prior political leader. Now they want to appoint all the staff who have an allegiance towards them. So. That is a step which should change because now people should start thinking more uh, openly. People start start appointing people who can actually give them a constructive criticism as well. 
Now, if you see, uh, if you do not do that, you will you may not be able to control those bureaucratic officers who may indulge in corruption, which you saw in Kerala recently, where a senior IAS officers was in where a senior IAS officer was involved in one of the most uh, terrifying gold smuggling case. Now, you should be the political leadership of the day should be aware of whatever the IAS officers should also be indulging in. So, if you do not have a set of IAS officers who are very credible, who are very, who has a sort of integrity in their profession, then there is a chance that they might also indulge in corruption, right? So that's the reason. Why do we hear such instances? Because political leaders, political, uh, you know, people who are political leaders should not see politics as a way of making money. Now that ideology or that outlook has to, politics should as at the end of the day should always be a way of socialism. But your money, your income should definitely come from other sources. You can be a businessman. You can gain your money from businessmen. There is no, there is no problem in that. You can be a lawyer. For example, there are leaders in India who are actually lawyers at, in their profession and then they become a politician. Why do they become that? It is because they know that once they are out of the political power, they need an income to stay on from. But there are a lot of other political leaders who views that okay once i am into politics then i don't have to look for any other source of income politics will give me money this leads to a lot of huge corruption because people want to create immense amount of money have you seen that uh, if you look at the income tax filings of many of these famous political leaders in india you will be extremely surprised many of them have immense amount of income tax filings and no one even knows what is the source of these incomes where does where do these people get such high amount of income can you name a few political leaders who actually lives a very modest lifestyle? You can name a few, but that will be very, very few. A majority of the section of Indian population, Indian political leaders lives in grand mansions, has a huge amount of number of cars. Where does the money come from? Now, they might be businessmen in the, in the previous. That's fine. If they have a family business or if they earn actually, if they earn a huge amount of money from their profession, that is fine. For example, our, our uh, earlier education minister, Kabil Sibel, he is a senior. He is a senior Supreme Court lawyer. He, he is one of the uh, and the, you see other. Uh, he is one of the highest taxpayers in India because he earns a lot of money from his lawyer profession. Or if you look at his, uh, if you look at our uh, former foreign finance minister Arun Jaitley, he was there in the BJP government. He was also very senior. Uh, he was a, he was a Supreme Court lawyer. He was uh, he was a graduate of the uh, Sri Ram College of Commerce. So these people had a profession apart from this politics, and they were gaining income from that. If they are rich from that profession, you can't blame them. But if, if anyone does not have any profession, but still if they earn a lot of money just because of politics, it means that they are corrupt. Otherwise, how do they earn so much? Of so that is that, that shows that there is an increasing criminalization of politics. People who indulge in shady affairs, we do not know where their income sources come from, who funds their political parties, or, or uh, where, where do these people get the huge amount of money? So these questions actually leads us to the position where Indian politics needs a revamp, an overhauling. It's a change in thinking. At least the youth of the day has to change. For example, I may have a political lineage towards a party, but I should not see politi politics as an area where I can have easy income, easy money, or where I can make my lifestyle very easy just because I'm a politician. What is happening? The entire Gandhi family is in the politics. Now, even their daughters or their sons are expected to be. The, the era of dynasty politics has to change. Politics is not a birthright of one particular family. And that is applicable to all political parties, not just to Congress. Now, when we learn the failure of Congress, we have the separate chapter called the party system. 
uh, and then there is section in that party system called failure of Congress or the death of Congress. One of the reasons why they say is the death of Congress is because Congress is not able to think beyond the dynasty politics. They are not able to think beyond the family politics. They are not able to think beyond the Gandhis. Now, why is that? Because people still believe in this concept of dynasty politics where if, if your father was in politics, your son, your daughter, your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law, everyone is in politics and they look at politics as an area where they can make money from. That should not be that should not be the entire day. Social service should not be a profession. Social service should be a passion, right? So that should be uh, an area, a possible solution to clean up Indian politics, right? Okay. Anything else, guys? Yeah. Want to say? But I was thinking that all hmm. these guys who work that local only will come to that minister's office and will know, sir. Hmm. Hmm. What about them? Uh, they are working for party. Then this. Uh, what huh. will save this mandalam like the huh. general is there no yeah 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 okay uh, from there huh. they are getting into that minister's office yeah no? correct so, so they are working yeah uh, so you're saying that these people are actually working as a profession yeah true uh that is where it should change for example people uh, like for example people who are working at the local level or at the booth level they actually take up this particular profession of politics as in their full-time profession. That is okay. But at the end of the day, uh, it should not become a source for them to indulge in corrupt practice. Like no one tomorrow should come into politics believing that, okay, if I come into politics, I have a regular source of income. If it is out of their entire uh, belief uh, or if it is out of their passion for serving the population, then fine. If I believe that, okay, fine, I cannot take up any other profession. I only have to dedicate my entire life for social service. Then okay. Like there are people who dedicate their entire social life to social service. They serve the people, as you said, at local level. They serve at booth level. They serve at mandalam level. They serve at panjait level. They act as a local level secretary. They come into the panjaiti raj. They become a panjait member. They are being paid by the government for that. That is okay. They get a you know specific amount of salary for that. But beyond that, they should not aim for gaining crores of income because they are in politics. If they are only earning income which is only meant for them, if they are not indulging in corrupt practices or if they are not coming to politics because they can take up money from the government schemes and take it into their own pockets, that is that is wrong. But if they are coming into politics with a genuine concern for people's development or, or uh, if they're coming into politics or if they're coming into serving the people out of the genuine concern for serving the population of India, that is understandable. And if they are being paid a small amount of money as their salary, for serving, that is okay. For example, no one can say that the MPs or MLAs should not be paid their salaries. They have to get their salaries. But are they going beyond that and are they gaining, you know, income beyond their sources and, you know, creating crores of income and ensuring that their sons and daughters are staying in politics for a long time because they were in politics? That is wrong. When they indulge in corruption or when they indulge in illegal practices is when it, the politics loses its, uh, you know, sanctity. That is why people always say that it is better for a person to always have a you know sort of profession where uh, you do not see politics as a method for gaining unwanted income or you know huge amount of income i'll tell you like for example uh, just look at the declarations filed by people even at that level there will be a lot of people who are genuine politicians i'm not saying i'm not saying everyone is like that but there are also people a majority of a lot of people whom you see who files these elections who are there at the local level election just for ensuring that you know uh, they are getting huge amount of corrupted money from a lot of these sources. A lot of these funds, which is sanctioned by the government for the you know, Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, this contract act for local roads, 
many of the monies are going into corrupted ways only. But there are people who actually act or work at local level, who work for the benefit of the people, who work for the welfare of the people, become the local leaders, and then they enter these political positions. That is fine. If they have worked out with their hard work, and if they have the support of the people, that is well and fine. But the only concern is they should not indulge in uh, you know, corruption. They should not indulge in the way, or they should not look at politics where they can earn crores of income. Yeah, I hope you got the idea which I was referring to. Not that politics should not be seen as a full-time profession or as an area where you have to serve people. If you have to serve people full-time, then definitely you have to go for it. But it should not become an arena for corruption. Yeah, got that? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, but I understood yeah, your concern. Uh, yeah, I understood the concern where you meant that, you know, uh, aren't people who are actually dedicating their entire life for self-service. No problem. That is very, very well and fine understood. And that's also a good thing. Uh, there's nothing bad about that. But we have other people who just you take pro politics as an easy way out, who, who have nothing to do, they go into politics. People, I've seen people who feel, believe that, uh, see, I don't have anything much to do in my life. I have not, I, I don't feel, now let me go and serve the public. Now we know why they go and serve the public. They want to make money. But there are people who are essentially genuinely working at local level for the welfare of the people, for the development of the society, for the development of the local level committee, who actually work at panjayat level, who work at uh, you know uh, municipality level, who actually works with the development. They are very much respected and they should be respected. But there are other people who look at politics as a area for just making money. Right. So now coming back to our topic where we see the criminalization of Indian politics. I have a question. Uh, so from where did Indira Gandhi got Gandhi in her name? Okay, <laughs> good question. Uh, Indira Gandhi actually is not a part of the Gandhi family as such in the Mahatma Gandhi family. Uh, the reason why they all have Gandhi in their uh, name is because Indira Gandhi married a Parsi businessman called Feroz Gandhi. Actually, it is not Gandhi Gandhi per se. It is a Parsi family name of the husband of Indira Gandhi named as Feroz Gandhi. Uh, it is actually it's not Feroz Gandhi. So Feroz Gandhi actually came, even Feroz Gandhi is not from Gandhi family of Mahatma Gandhi. He's a Parsi business. So it is from Feroz Gandhi that they all got their Gandhi in their name. Right. So Indira Gandhi, Indira, it was Indira Nehru, Priyadarshini, Priyadarshini Nehru and Indira Nehru who married Feroz Gandhi, got the name after that. After Okay. All right. Hope that's clear. All right. Uh, so look at this data that you have in front of you. This will show you how Indian politics have become a safe haven for criminals. Right. Uh, in 2004, 24 percentage of the MPs in our parliament had pending criminal cases against them. Now, is that decreasing? No. In 2009, it is rising to 30 percentage. 2014, it is 34 percentage. 2019, it is 43 percentage. This is a trend that Indian politics is going on, where you see 43 percentage, currently 43 percentage of the MPs have pending criminal cases. And, more, and out of this, I think more than 20 percentage of the MPs are charged with grievous offenses. Grievous offenses meaning criminal offenses which has heinous punishments and heinous crimes like murder, torture, kidnapping, extortion, rape, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, gang murders and everything like that. Drug businesses, everything. Narcotics. There are MPs in our parliament who represent our constituencies who are charged with criminal offenses, guys. And look at what Justice Nariman, uh, it was uh, Rohinton Nariman, Justice Rohinton Nariman, he says, no political party offers an explanation as to why 
candidates with pending criminal cases are selected as candidates. Now, there should be an explanation for this, right? Now, no political party is ready to let it be BJP, let it be International Congress, let it be BSP, let it be Trinamool Congress. No political party in India is able to offer us an explanation why candidates with pending criminal cases are selected as candidates. And it's, so this shows that there is a rapid need for cleansing Indian politics, meaning Indian politics has become a safe haven for criminals, guys. If it is 43 percentage in 2019, imagine in 2024, after five years, what will be the percentage? I don't think it's going to decrease. It's only going to increase if it is at increasing at the current stage, unless we bring in current norms. Though we have certain safeguards, like uh, after the Lily Thomas case, there was a case called Lily Thomas versus Union of India. Lily Thomas was a Supreme Court advocate who filed a case in, against the Union of India for the to check the criminalization of Indian politics. In Lily Thomas case, the Supreme Court uh, says people with People who are convicted of offenses with punishments more than two years should not be allowed to contest the election. In the sense, people who are convicted, people who are convicted of crimes with having a jail term more than two years should not be allowed to contest the election. Since then, people who have uh, who have been convicted of crimes for more than two years will are not allowed to contest elections. But still, why do we have forty three percentage of the people? with pending criminal cases, because most of the time these cases are at appeal stage or they are not yet convicted. These are under trial stages in the in the court, meaning no decision have been taken yet on these cases. So these people who have been charged or been, you know, uh, have been, uh, you know, uh, charged with these criminal cases who are of, which are of grievance nature or heinous crimes still represent us. And many people openly declare this in their, I mean, like they are required to openly declare it, even after openly declaring it during the time of filing the affidavit, people still vote for them. Now, that is a greater concern. We as Indian citizens who are aware, who are supposed to, who tells us that we are above 18 years old, we have this voting rights. Are you guys aware of the candidates that you guys are voting for? For example, many of you voted in the recent Panchayat elections, or many of you would have voted in the past 2019 I don't know if you guys, uh, does, did anyone vote in the 2019 Lok Sabha election? Was there anyone who voted in the 2019 Lok Sabha election? Anyone? No, I hope not. I don't, I don't think you would have got, uh, no, I don't think none of you would have voted. But imagine if you are voting for this, for example, many of you might be voting in the upcoming Kerala State Legislative Assembly election, right? Many of you might will, will be voting. Now, when you vote for it, or even when you, even when you, even if you, when you voted for the Panjait elections in the recent, how many of you actually inquired about the candidates that are representing your uh, what, or even how many of in, people in India are actually concerned about the background or the precedent about the candidate that you're voting for? Many of us do not inquire into this. Now, even if we inquire, the, the problem is we may not be able to get enough information on them because the political parties most of the times do not take an effort to publicize the cases against them or the background of these candidates. That is why Supreme Court and Election Commission have time and again instructed the political parties to declare the details of their candidates on their websites and on the social media handles because every voter in india has a fundamental right to know the background of the candidates for whom they are voting for <clears throat> many of you might be voting many of you might be voting for a candidate who has a criminal pending case against him and how many of you are aware again aware of that most of the time you vote for the party symbol you might vote for the and simple, you might vote for the lotus, you might vote for the uh, the sickle and the uh, sickle symbol, 
or you might be voting for the elephant symbol you might be voting for the cycle symbol you are just voting for the parties guys you're not voting at the end of the day for to check the candidates from what background they come from what criminal cases they have pending against them or is this a candidate fit enough to represent in my constituency and that is where you have the power and most of the times people just exercise their power mindlessly when you have when you're above 18 years old and when you have the voting power all these questions should come in your mind am i voting for the right candidate is that candidate promised to bring in the necessary development reforms in my constituency does he agree to the political ideology that i believe in is he a man of integrity or is he or she a man a man or a woman of integrity does he or she stands for the women's rights or the voters rights or the human rights or he or she just a mere criminal are the questions that you have to ask yourself before actually press that symbol or you press that particular well because every vote of yours is valid so when everyone in india starts thinking about the same the politics in india will start clean will start cleaning up will start to clean up now what is happening every 5 years the political parties comes to your constituency promises you a lot of things you do not even know who is actually promising you what are the promises that have been kept or what promises have not been kept and you go mindlessly to the constituent assembly and you just vote for it or the constituency and you just vote for that particular person and that also is another reason why the criminalization of indian politics is increasing because people are not aware of what the background of the city or background of their candidates are and this is exactly what justice rohinton nariman in supreme court case actually mentioned if you can see this newspaper cutting this is a newspaper cutting this is no political party offers an explanation as to why candidates with pending criminal cases are selected as candidates why are they selected there are different reasons one they come up with a huge influence second they come up with a huge money third they can own, they can provide security for themselves like they don't need any security by any security force they can come up with their own goons or gundas and they can actually protect their own vote bases fourth they actually have incriminating evidence against fellow politicians if you do not give a seat to a person with a criminal case the he or she might come out with examples of your own political influences or your own criminal cases against the political parties so out of fear out of money power out of muscle power out of all these influences which the criminals actually come with the political parties are bound or actually forced to give the seat or they are ready to give the seat and there is also an increasing uh, there is an interesting data that is uh, given by a very famous uh, uh, i don't know if you what uh, there is this agency in india called uh, prs legislative research they are a think tank that conducts research into uh, the electoral behavior in india. Uh, you won't believe guys uh, in any constituency in india if you contest a person with a known criminal background against a candidate with a very clean background it is to shown that more often more often than not it is a guy with the criminal background that is bound to win the election meaning there is a higher chance for a person who is having a criminal background to win the election than the person without a criminal background to win now that shows how our electoral behavior has changed. if it has come to a situation where a person with criminal cases stands more chance of winning the election than the other person who has a clean background that shows how our background how our electoral behavior has changed and this needs to change and this is the exact behavior of the electoral community which includes us you and me has to th- rethink what are we trying to do where is the indian parliament reached now i'll show you another example another major problem in indian politics called as defections defections means jumping from one political party to another just for main, just for meeting your own personal gains there is this famous uh, phrase in indian politics used to define defection it's called irram gayaram 
Ayaram Gayaram was a, a phrase that was used to define the defections in India. You know, because this phrase came in 1967 when there was this guy called Gayalal. Gayalal was a member of uh, Indian National Congress uh, in from the uh, Haryana Haryana state. Now he was contesting for the Haryana Legislative Assembly in 1967 under the ticket of Indian National Congress. Now Gayalal won the won the elections. Under the name of Indian National Congress, he was a member of Indian National Congress, and he won the elections in 1967. After he got elected in Indian National Congress uh, under the ticket of Indian National Congress, he changed parties thrice within a span of 14 days. Within 14 days, he jumped from INC to another party, okay, and from INC to he he actually jumped to Janata Party. Within from Janata Party, he jumped back to Congress, and within nine hours, he jumped back to Janata Party again. Meaning, he changed parties thrice within 14 days, from INC to Janata Party, from Janata Party to INC, and then again to Janata Party. Now, this actually, uh, you know, resulted in this phrase called "Ayaram Gayaram," meaning the guy came and he also left. Now, this started showing this was an example of how defections were affecting Indian politics. A leader who was elected by the people, believing to be a candidate of the political party, tomorrow is now jumping to another party even without the permission of the voters. For example, I would have voted for the guy believing that he is a member of Indian National Congress. Now, once I gave him the vote, once I gave him my vote, thinking that he is a member of Indian National Congress, tomorrow he is defecting the party to which I do not have any ideological lineage. For example, I might be a staunch supporter. I might be an ardent supporter of uh, Congress. Now a guy, now a candidate representing Congress jumps to another party, which I do not have any support to. He is actually manipulating my vote because it is my vote that actually made him the candidate who won the election. Now, on his own decision, he is jumping party after party. Isn't that a cheating of the voters? It is after this incidents, or it is after this that so many incidents started arising in India, where political leaders started just defecting, just started jumping from another political party to another political party because of the offers offers that was given to another party. Now, Janata Party would have told uh, Gayalal, telling that if you come to our political party, we'll give you ministerial position, and we can make the, the INC government dissolve. Now that happened. Now we also saw something similar to this when. Uh, <clears throat> The recent Karnataka elections and Maharashtra elections were done. What happened in the recent Maharashtra elections? The 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 Congress, the government which under BJP uh, was getting the maximum number of votes, but they did not have enough number of votes to form the government. And the con the the opposition parties under the leadership of NCP and Congress, yeah, Jodi Raditya Rao Sindhya. Now Jodi Raditya Rao Sindhya can be one of the examples of uh, defections. He was a staunch supporter, or he was a staunch member of Indian National Congress. He defected to international. He defected to BJP. Now he is a member of BJP. Now what happened after that? Jodi Raditya Sindhya, or in the Madhya Pradesh election, it was uh, it was international Congress who won the elections. All right, and a, a party was formed. A government was formed under the leadership of Kamal Nath. Kamal Nath was a very famous leader in, in Madhya Pradesh, and he formed the leader. But there was a section of people who believed that Jodi Raditya Sindhya, who was a very young leader in the Madhya Pradesh government, Madhya Pradesh uh, area. Should become the leader, or should become the chief minister. But instead, Kamal Nath, who was a very old leader, who was a very uh, respected leader, he became the leader, and that actually created problems within the Madhya Pradesh government because it was Jyoti Raditya Rao Sindhya who did all the groundwork for Congress to win the elections in uh, Madhya Pradesh. Now, what happened? Jyoti uh, Sindhya was unhappy with all these things. So, what did he do? He, along with a lot of other MPs, defected from Congress and they joined BJP. 
earlier only one guy for example if i wanted to defect the car earlier if i wanted to defect from one party to another it was allowed earlier now after the anti defection law the law has now changed if you are defecting the defection has to be along with the two third members of the party for example if there is a government form and if the two third members of the party defect together then it will be considered as a legal defection now jodhiraditya rao sindhya had enough mlas who were supporting him which constituted for more than two third him along with the mlas which actually supported him defected from congress and went to bjp what happened kamalnath's kamalnath's government in madhya pradesh fell bjp government came back into power now this actually affects in this defection still happen in india but difference there is a difference right now the defections will only be legal if two third members of the party jump from another one party to another it is okay earlier if a part if a if one single person who was an, who was winning the election who he, if he jumped from one party to another it was okay but after the anti defection law was brought in this was made illegal even with the defection telling that two third members have to uh, defect to have a legal defection even that is creating problems why now the parties are offering huge sum of money to all mlas to defect now group of mlas bulk are defecting now what is the use of this anti defection law if people are actually offering huge sum of money to defect that is why you see soon after elections the parties actually take all their mlas in a bus and get them to resort take away all their mobiles and make, make ensures that they actually stay in a resort or stay away from even their family members and all other connections so that they are not influenced by the other parties to to defect because numbers matter that you saw it in rajasthan election you saw it in madhya pradesh election you saw it in maharashtra election maharashtra election was a very peculiar case what happened in maharashtra election ncp national ncp which was the uh, whose leader was sharad pawar him along with congress was ready to him along with uh, 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 which was a party uh, shiv sena shivasena along with ncp along with congress was ready to form the government in maharashtra because bjp did not have enough seats soon after one day early morning we see that bjp government bjp has actually uh, taken the oath and uh, formed the government in maharashtra how a leader from ncp along with a lot of political lot of uh, a leader from ncp called uh, his name is ajit pawar he was he was actually uh, one of the cousin or he was i think he was a brother of uh, sharad pawar he defected from congress to bjp so bjp felt that along with ajit pawar a lot of mlas would defect from ncp to bjp so that bjp will have enough numbers to form the government in maharashtra but unfortunately only sharad only ajit pawar defected none of the other mlas defected so the congress the bjp government in maharashtra fell and it was the uh, shivasena government under aditya thakre ஒரு <laughs> now where is your power guys now think about it now think about from a polit- now forget politics think from one layman's perspective you are an individual who goes to the polling booth thinking that you have the power to elect your leaders and they do whatever they want to gain their own income why do they defect because they have offers from the other parties for ministers they have offers of ministerial positions they have offers of better government and they also offer you telling that if you are coming into our party we will ensure that none of the cases that you are involved in will co- ever come up uh, if a person defects then that that particular constituency re-election occurs if 
only one person defects apnevesh ask if a person defects will there be a reelection in that constituency that will only happen if that one particular person defects for example with the current law if a person defects into another party if he is only single guy that is defecting into that party then he will be he has to resign from the party and he will lose the seat and if he loses the seat then there will be reelection in that constituency but if him along with two third members of that party defects to the other party then it won't be considered as an illegal defection then he won't he won't lose that seat also it will only be considered as a split in the party then he won't but let's say if i win from this particular constituency under the ticket of a particular political party let's say for congress or bjp for example and if tomorrow if i jump to another party then it will be considered as an illegal defection i will lose that seat and there will be reelection in that constituency okay so now i'm thinking so ajit pawar faced reaction ajit pawar at the end of the day uh, did not face reelection because he came back from bjp to uh, congress again like he was taken back to ncp he did not uh, though he uh, pledged his support for bjp government he changed his uh, position last minute and he came back to congress or he came so not congress he came back to ncp and it is not like ajit pawar actually uh, faced elections in the first place he was just a member of ncp he was uh, he was expecting to become a member of a legislative assembly through the vidhan sabha meaning the higher position like there are certain states which have two houses like how we have rajya sabha and lok sabha in uh, central government there are certain states which has two houses in kerala we only have one legislative assembly but there are states like uttar pradesh maharashtra where you have two houses there is an upper house and there is a lower house there is a vidhan sabha and there is a legislative assembly so ajit i think ajit pawar is expecting to become minister uh, from the vidhan sabha or the upper house but uh, anyways he was not standing from any constituency that did not happen but uh, even 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 if you had to even if he had uh, represented a constituency he would not have faced the reelection because he came back he stood with ncp and bjp was taken for uh, bjp was made a fool out there because uh, he told that i will stand with you but he he found that none of the mla supported him so he came back just like how he went there he came back so nothing actually changed over there it was ncp and shivasena who formed the government right so such political dramas happen in india every now and then and it is a public that is being made a fool out of here because you go to the constituencies thinking that you are electing a leader who will represent your aspirations represent your political ideologies you never know when he changes the party along with other people so anti defection law even though it has uh, helped to reduce defection to a great extent right now even anti defection law has become useless why because now the anti defection law is only useful if it is less than two third members of the party now if more than two third number of the members of the party defect there is nothing you can do it is a legal defection if a huge number of parties if a huge number of mlas from your party defects to other party nothing will happen it will become it will considered as a split in the political so defections are allowed but in a different manner so that is why people say that anti defection law has to be reformed there should there needs to be amendment in the anti defection the current anti defection law is useless because people the political parties are offering huge sum of money horse trading is happening they are facing crores they are offering crores of money to different mlas so that group of mlas will defect from one party to right so this is what is happening in the so this is a problem these are the few problems that we faced in the that we face in the indian parliamentary system so in the next classes we will be dealing with what is the role of opposition the issues with opposition in india and the date of parliamentary reform date of data on parliamentary disruptions and the reforms that we require all right so right now whatever we have discussed we dis- we decided we discussed why we re- went with the parliamentary system what were the advantages of parliamentary system in india over others what were the concerns of western scholars of parliamentary over the par- parliamentary system in india evolution of parliamentary democracy we saw the three phase the nehruvian phase the post nehruvian phase from 1960 to 1990 where there was a start of parliamentary decline 
We saw from 1990s onwards where there was the greatest amount of parliamentary decline, the criminalization of Indian politics, the defections, uh, the lack of electoral reforms, the criminalization of Indian politics, corruption and everything. We saw the rate of criminalization of Indian politics and we saw how defections actually affect the Indian political system. So these are the problems in the Indian parliamentary system. There are other problems which we will be discussing in the coming classes. Any questions that you want to ask us? Anything that you want to ask? Okay. So uh, is there anyone who did not hear the questions that I told at the beginning of the class for, uh, for your practice? Is there anyone? If there is none, if everyone has written down the question, then I won't repeat it. If anyone wants the question, then tell me right now, I'll repeat the question. Anyone? All right. So the questions that I asked you to write was based on the preamble uh, that we discussed before. So the question is comment in 150 words, significance of the preamble. So this was a previous question that was asked in 2015 for 10 markers, two sites, comment in 150 words, significance of the preamble. All right. And then uh, comment in 150 words, secularism in Indian constitution. I know I haven't sent you the secularism notes, but try to write the answers with your knowledge of secularism. You will get the notes later on. No worries. Uh, but at least write the preamble question because you have the notes for it. Secularism notes, I'm still preparing because I told you I didn't save it. I'll take some time to prepare the slides again. So you have these two questions, significance of the preamble and secularism in Indian constitution. Both are 150 words, two sites. Both are previous prior year, uh, previous year questions. I expect everyone to write the answers because I do not get many answers from you all. I only get answers from two to three people. It has reduced even further. Uh, please write the answers, guys. It is for your betterment. Uh, you will get to know the advantages of answer writing at a later stage in your life. So start attempting it. Uh, people who write the answers knows that I correct the answers on time and I'll send it to you with all the feedback. So it is a good learning experience. All right. I hope that's all. If any questions, just let me know. If not, I'll write them. All right then. Uh, thank you everyone. Bye-bye. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, sir.